Well, good morning and welcome. It's good to see each and every one of you here for our second week in our five-week series on the Apostles' Creed. And as, you know, I've been preparing this and working through, I'm just so excited. It's really nourishing for me, even as a, as a, a teacher and as your pastor. It's just really good stuff. So let's um, get into it. We have a fair amount to go through today, and I want to make sure we utilize our time well. So let's begin as we did last week, and as we'll do every week, by reciting the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So we'll do a quick summary of what we covered last week. We um, talked a bit about the origin of the Apostles' Creed, that it was used even in the early 3rd century, so over 1,800 years ago, as a baptismal formula. These words were spoken of new believers uh, as they were going into their baptism. And it's uh, seen as a summary of, not a replacement for, but a summary of the teachings of Scripture, the teachings of the apostles who passed down the faith from our Lord onto us. And important things happen when we speak it, when we speak it in moments of private devotion and prayer, or maybe uh, definitely when we speak it together as God's people gathered for worship. It forms us. It unites us not just together in this congregation, but with Christians all over the world from all times. We speak it as an act of faith. And you remember, as we, as we went through them summarizing last week, uh, we believe that the Father, we believe in the Father, is neither male nor masculine. And the one true Son is our brother, Jesus Christ. He is our adopted father because of our relationship with our brother, the Lord Jesus. Uh, sorry, I skipped a point. The, the power, no, the father's power. We talked a bit about how he's not limited in power, but uses that power to set us free. And finally, we talked about this idea that creation is good. Uh, it's not a yin and a yang. It's not uh, inherently bad, but it is good. The creator is good, despite what's gone wrong with it. So that's what we covered last week in, in short form. Uh, this week we head on to section two. Now, if you remember, the creed is broken up in a Trinitarian way, I believe, in the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. So this week we begin section two on the Son. We'll definitely not cover all of it, but here's what I hope we'll be able to cover today. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So we start with, I believe in Jesus Christ. 
And this is the heartbeat of the creed that we get to in this second section. And the very core of it is a name, Jesus Christ. It's not like a report card where, you know, it'd be like, Bowalski, Sean, Christ, Jesus. <laughs> That's not quite how this works. It's his name, Jesus, and his title, Christ. So Jesus the Christ might be a different way to think about it. Let's consider each of those in turn. First, his name is Jesus. Now, we Westerners don't typically think this way, but in many other cultures, including the ancient Israelite culture, a name is not just a name. A name means something. Uh, so, in the Old Testament, God reveals his name to Moses. Yahweh, uh, the, roughly translated, I am, or I am the existing one. Yahweh. When Moses asks, who are you? He gives not a description, not a concept, but a name. The one who's different from all others. And it's the same thing when it comes to Jesus. Remember that Mary and Joseph didn't even pick the name. God himself gave that name when he announced the birth of Jesus through the angel. Well, what is interesting, of, uh, what is interesting with the name Jesus? Literally, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves, that is, God saves. His name is Jesus because he saves people from their sins. That is the reality behind his name. Now, Jesus was a common first name in first century Palestine, maybe like Joshua might be for us today. But because God gave this name in this very special story, in this very special case, it's to indicate to us that this is the Savior. This Jesus, in him God saves. In him God became a human. And uh, here's an inferential point, but an important one. The Apostles' Creed mentions nothing directly about sin or our, our status or our, our, our state as human beings, but it does implicitly. If it speaks of a Savior, then that implies that we need saving. It implies that only sinners need to be saved. So it doesn't talk about our captivity to sin and death directly, but it's implied here. We speak the truth that Jesus is the Savior, and that means we need saving. Well, his name is Jesus, and his title is the Christ, uh, the anointed one, quite literally. You know, we have different titles. Uh, I'm a reverend doctor. You might have a prime minister, Mr. President, pastor so-and-so doctor, medical doctor, etc., etc. But in the scriptures, a title will capture the essence of the life of the one who holds it. So apostle literally means sent one, right? The, the title captures what you are and what you do. So in, understood in this way, to have a role is to have duties and responsibilities. But to have a title is to have a calling, to have an identity that has claims of ownership over you. So you might be a, a judge as your occupation, but I would also hope that someone might be a judge as their calling from God in life to speak justice into our systems, right? Think of it that way. So to call him the Christ is not just to, you know, get out of his last name, but just to really describe who he is. Okay, well, who is he? What does this title mean? What does it tell us about who he is? And there's a very um, standard 
three-part under uh, description of, of his role, his office, who he is, prophet, priest, and king. In the Bible, someone of importance would have oil pulled on their head as an act of consecration for a role, for a calling from God. This was done with, say, King David. This is done, for just one example, done over and over. Prophets, priests, kings were anointed. Remember, Christ means the anointed one. So what does it mean that he is anointed? Well, he's anointed as a prophet. A prophet is one who speaks for God, who takes and receives what they hear from God and speaks it to the people in the context. Usually it's not about telling the future. Well, sometimes that happens. Usually it's about speaking what needs to be said to God's people, particularly when they're disobedient, but also speaking comfort to them. A prophet receives from the Lord and speaks to the people. A priest is one who represents the people before God, right? Who go into a temple or a, some other sort of uh, place or a role within the system that was developed there and reconciles, represents people to God. And Christ, as our great high priest, represents us before God as sinners to reconcile us with the Father, to open up the way for forgiveness and open up a way to the Father for us. And finally, he's a king. You know, it's all this talk in Scripture of the kingdom of God, Christ being the one true king of David, who truly holds power and reigns over all things. He is the king that we need. And I'd add, we'll get to this a bit later, but I'd also add quickly, don't lose how strong of a political statement that is. Not in the, like, horse race, uh, you know, who gets elected sort of sense. But in the true lowercase p, broad sense, political, we, we're first and foremost monarchists as Christians, just not the kind you might think, <laughs> right? In all these things, he is the Christ, he is the anointed one who has been anointed to be for us. I believe in Jesus Christ. And his only son, that is the Father's only son. See, while we Christians are adopted as sons and daughters of the Father, Jesus, the Son, is very, by his very nature the Son of the Father. Uh, we'll get to unpacking this in a bit, but the idea is that he is just as much God and just as fully God as the Father is fully God. This, this, this language of son in the scriptures is important here. Uh, a son is someone who belongs to the one who originated them. You know, sons of the uh, Israelites, sons of Israel, sons of this patriarch who founded their people. Son of Jacob, son of Abraham. These are, are not just, this is not just the results of what you'd find on Ancestry.com. It's not merely a statement of uh, who your parents were, but it's a statement of identity of culture, of who you belong to, shared history, that sort of thing. So when the creed, and really when the New Testament talks about Jesus being God's only son, he's talking about God's only begotten son. He alone is from the Father and shares in the Father's essence. We'll, we'll unpack that in a bit. He's just like his Father. He fully possesses everything it is to be God. And as I mentioned last week, but as a key concept, therefore, since our Savior, our brother Jesus Christ, is in God's inner life, is God himself, 
We are then, by way of adoption, we are able to go up into God's inner life and participate in it. We are brought up into who God is by grace. Only begotten son. This language, uh, begotten, is maybe an old-timey word. Uh, You might associate it with the King James Version. But it gets at uh, an important concept. That is, we might be adopted sons. We might be created. There's a sense that we are sons and daughters by way of being creatures. God made us. There's a sense that we are sons and daughters by way of faith, by, as I say, joining to Jesus. But only one is generated from the Father. Only one fully takes his existence from the Father. That's what this word begotten is getting at. Some translations say one and only Son, only begotten Son. It's a key idea, and we'll get to it here in just a minute. Because we can't go much further without talking about the fourth century controversy. Now, I don't know how much you know about church history. I promise not to get too deep down into the weeds. The history is pretty complex here. But I can give a basic summary that gets us to some key concepts. In the 300s, in the 4th century, in the church, uh, major theological controversy arose that had to get at the identity of the Son, the identity of Jesus. And the question basically boiled down to something like this. Is the Son of God somehow less divine than the Father? In some way, is the Son of God to the same degree fully divine like the Father? Is this this first century Jewish man really and fully God? Is that what we can say? And while you and I might sort of consider this a settled matter, uh, we definitely should, it was incredibly controversial at the time. Uh, No one wanted to say, really in, in, in the Christian world in the third century, no one was saying that Jesus was just another person, just, just one of many prophets. No one was quite saying something like that. But what does it mean to call him Lord? What is his identity with relationship to the Father? In other words, is the Son of God divine in the same way, to the same degree, that the Father is divine? And while this uh, began, again, I won't get you into the history, but it was just a few years before 325 that the Roman Empire became officially Christian. And while that had many downsides, it had some upsides too. One of the upsides is the emperor said, y'all are fighting. I got these bishops who are warring about this and that, and you, I want you to come together, and I want you to figure this out. So he, uh, you know, helped bring together the first church council, ecumenical council, so representatives from all over the world. Really, every Christian was represented at the time, was represented there, right? And he said, you guys, you all need to figure this out. (laughs) Uh, It was truly ecumenical. And from the Council of Nicaea, really two sides calcified and emerged. Uh, We'll call this... uh, So, sorry with the language here, but Nicaea is the town in which it happened. So the Nicene Creed is the creed that emerged from this council. And there are basically two sides, the pro-Nicene position and the anti-Nicene position. That is, in 325, they, you know, came to a very clear agreement, but unfortunately that did not settle the matter in the church. In fact, for 60 years or more, uh, great debate, great controversy raged as they figured out what to do with this creed, Uh, what was the right position. So let's look at the two 
factions or the two positions here. The first we might call the pro-Nicene uh, position. And uh, spoiler alert, this is the one that won the day, <laughs> and for good reason. Uh, but let's see what it has to say. The Son is fully divine, just like the Father is divine. In fact, there is no difference in his essence, in his being, in his divinity from the Father. He's not God Junior. He's not God Light. You know, like you have, you have light yogurt, L-I-T-E, low-fat yogurt, half the taste, half the flavor. Well, he's not Jesus Light. He's not half God and half your Savior. He's fully God, says the Nicene position. Now, why would the Nicene position arrive at this? I mean, first and foremost, uh, they drew from Scripture. So the, the first point you might turn to is this idea that Jesus is sinless. Because if you have Jesus committing sins, it's kind of a deal breaker. <laughs> you can't really call him God if he's done moral wrong, right? If he's a sinner, that's off, off the table. Well, when you look at that evidence, uh, no one could prove any charge of wrongdoing in his trial. There's no instance of sin in his life or in his ministry. Uh, he didn't commit any sin. In fact, Scripture, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. There are several Scripture passages that teach us Jesus was sinless. Well, okay, so far... Uh, so good, but just because you're sinless doesn't mean you're divine necessarily. So we also have uh, the pro-Nicene position draws from Scripture, the claims where Jesus himself claims to be God. Now, a couple ways we can look at this. I won't, I won't uh, spread out all of the evidence, but let's look at some representative and key bits of Scripture on this. Uh, the first is that, uh, hold on, how did I lay this out? Yep, okay. Um, and then we'll, we'll also get into others making claims that he's fully God. So those are the two points we're headed towards. Let's unpack the first one here. Jesus claims to be God. The first is his teachings about himself. Jesus regularly teaches humility. He regularly teaches emptying himself, that we must empty ourselves and serve others as humble servants. And yet he also says some pretty remarkable things. I am the bread of life. <laughs> I am the light of the world. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, those would be remarkably proud and boastful things unless they were true, right? If, if he has this understanding of himself to be divine, then you can make sense of these strong claims about his identity and his command for all of us to be humble. Uh, if he's not divine, then he's actually pretty contradictory here and perhaps a bit deluded. Uh, but not only that, Jesus forgives sin. Uh, there's this one episode in Mark chapter 2, but there are many others as well. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's a strong statement. No Jewish teacher would say that, because only God has that authority. So now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. The point, and again, this is representative, is that Jesus claims this prerogative to forgive sin that really everyone knew only God has. That's a claim to divinity. Uh, he, will, he claims that he will judge the world, and very strongly in the Jewish mind, only God will judge the world in the end. I won't take you there, but you'll have to trust me. And then we have these sayings about Jesus and his Father. Uh, these various things he says about the relationship between the Son and the Father. So, for example, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, I want to take a quick pause here. That requires some interpretation. One in purpose, one in intention, you know, one in, in love, one in being, one in nature. In what sense, Jesus, are you and the Father one? Well, we need to figure that out, but at the very least, we have this strong statement. We know how he seemed to have meant it because his audience took up stones to stone him. Because that's what you do when someone claims to be God. That's what you do when someone blasphemes. But in response, he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for the blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Uh, for the sake of time, let me skip down to the end, because Jesus answers them, uh, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now the question, the interpretive question we have is how much of that statement, the Father is in me and I am in the Father, is about God's inner life, who God is in himself, and how much of that statement might be about Jesus on earth, uh, the mission of the Messiah, Okay, that's an inter a debatable interpretive thing that we'll, we'll come back to later. But I want you to see that Jesus really does seem to be claiming divinity here. Similarly in John 14, if you really know me, you'll know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, one of the disciples says, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, show us the Father? Now, this is important and interesting. Because only God can know God, right? Uh, only God can know God's self. He is radically different than us creatures, and yet Jesus is here claiming to know the Father and to be able to share that knowledge. That's a claim to deity, right? Um, did I put it up there? For the sake of time, I'll, I'll just summarize it. But in John chapter 8, Jesus um, is confronted by some detractors, right? And he says, your father Abraham longed to see this day. And they say, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. You're not even like 50 years old. How can you talk about our father Abraham? And Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth even before Abraham was, Yahweh. 
even before Abraham was, I am, which is a reference to God's name that he gave to Moses. And man, they're ready to kill him then. It's a pretty strong claim to deity. And one final representative point. Again, there's more here, but this is, I think, uh, going to give us the picture. After his resurrection, Jesus accepts worship. I mean, his disciples worship him. And any good Jew would know you don't worship anything except God. We'll come back to that in a minute. So I, I lay out uh, this quick sketch here to talk about where Jesus claims to be God. I want us to look at other claims, uh, sorry, others who claim that he is God as well. And an important passage here is in Colossians chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing to uh, the Christians in the town of Colossae. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now catch that phrase, the firstborn over all creation, because it's an important point of debate we'll get to in a minute. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Firstborn again, right? So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Quick aside, is that a statement about God's inner life? Or a statement about Jesus' mission in the world? Huh. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Again, pretty strong statement by the Apostle Paul. Son is the image of the invisible God, seems to speak to his divinity. Uh, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the Logos, is a very common way to speak of the Son, the incarnate, the one who uh, became incarnate in Jesus Christ. Uh, but let's look at Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. So here is an example of humility that Paul recommends to Christians. This Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, uh, you have it set out here in, in some interesting ways. Jesus being in very nature God. That seems to be talking about God's inner life. But towards the end here, you have something you might not catch immediately. The name of Yahweh, every knee shall bow in heaven and under the earth, and every name acknowledge that Yahweh is Lord. That's from Isaiah chapter 45. That almost exact words, that exact concept is spoken of the God of Israel, Yahweh in Israel, in, uh, in the book of Isaiah. Here Paul is applying it to Jesus Christ. It's a pretty strong statement. Well, that's the gist of the pro-Nicene position. Let's take a look at the anti-Nicene position. Uh, sometimes it's called Arianism. 
Now, this is not the like white supremacy prison gang, the Arians, that's with a Y. Uh, this is named after Arius, a fourth uh, century bishop and teacher whose you know, name kind of stuck with this position, even as it evolved over time. Well, what's the basic idea of the position that resisted this orthodoxy, this Nicene Creed? One is a very strict monotheism. That is, God is one. And here's the thing with uh, mistakes in theology. Uh, I call them heresies, right? They're so close. <laughs> but where they get it wrong, it makes all the difference. Yes, God is one. There's not multiple gods. There is only one God. But the Arians were committed to this idea that in every possible sense, God is one. I couldn't countenance this idea that there is uh, three persons within God's life. No, no, God is one in every sense possible. That rigidly strict monotheism is a found foundation of their position and, as you'll see, informs their resistance to what Nicaea has to say. Uh, another important theological idea is that God cannot experience change. In other words, God is perfect. If something changes, it either changes for the better or for the worse, right? If something changes for the better, then it wasn't perfect initially. If something changes for the worse, then it used to be perfect, but now it's not. God can't change. This is a basic theological idea and, and a, a true one and a good one. But if you take it too far, you limit even the possibility of an incarnation of God becoming a human and somehow experiencing change. So again, it's a good commitment that gets taken in the wrong ways. Uh, similarly, God is transcendent. He is removed from this world of change. And many of the anti-Nicene crowd was uh, committed to this idea that God can't even come into contact with change directly, much less the change of this world, which is why God created indirectly. In, in this position, the Aryan position, God created the best creature, the super creature. The, the first thing he does is he creates the word. Then, through that word, as removed from it, so God doesn't have to touch the change, the word creates the rest of existence, the rest of the universe, right? that sort of thing. And then, in Arian thought, right, in the thought of Arius, that created word, that super creature, that firstborn of all creation that is talked about in Colossians chapter 1, well, that uh, word then became incarnate and took on human existence in Jesus. But that word, the Son of God, is not eternal. Uh, at the end of the day, according to this position, that uh, word is a creature, not the creator. And so that can't be God like the Father is God. Here's the problem that the Arian position raises. Listen, everything we've said here, that's not true of Jesus. Jesus experienced change, right? Jesus is very much in this world, not separated or transcendent from it. So we can't say that Jesus is God in the same way the Father is God because these things are incompatible. 
And so the anti-Nicene solution is that the son is not fully God in the way that the father is God. Uh, maybe he's close. Maybe he's a, a carbon copy. Maybe he's a, a demigod or something like that. But he's not divine in the way the father is. But here's the thing. Arius supported his views from scripture. You know, it's not like you could just turn to one verse. As I say, this controversy uh, was there for a reason. Because we have some passages that maybe sound like the son is a creature. Again, I'm, I'm just giving you a sample here that's representative. But in Acts chapter 2, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God made this Jesus. Is this about God's inner life? Or is this about Jesus' mission in the world? Maybe it could go either way. Or uh, Romans chapter 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, that is his son, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Firstborn. Again, sounds like Arian thought. The very first creature, the greatest creature, uh, but a creature like the rest of us. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself. And then we go back to Colossians 1.15. Again, it says, the firstborn among creation seems to suggest, well, if you're the first, the first crops, the first harvest out of a harvest season, that's a crop like the other crops. If you're the firstborn of creatures, then that's a creature like the other creatures, right? You can see how Arius might turn to his Bible and find support for this way of thinking. And not only that, you have some of the words of Jesus himself that seem to lend support to Arius. John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Look, even Jesus himself says only the Father is divine, only the Father is truly God. John 14, Jesus straight up says, the Father is greater than I. If he's fully God, then how can the Father be greater than him? Again, is this about the inner life of God? Is this about Jesus' mission in the world? And uh, regularly they bring up, listen, there are things of true that are, of Jesus that are just obviously not true of God. God never gets tired and has to take a nap, right? <laughs> God never is ignorant in the sense that there's something he doesn't know. God never asks a question without knowing the answer. He might be the best lawyer ever. God doesn't suffer, and yet Jesus did all those things. So how can we say that Jesus is fully God? We shouldn't. We should say, as the Arians would tell you, uh, that he is the created word. The Son is not fully God. Here's a summary of the position. The Son and the Father do not have the same essence. That is, what it means to be the Father, God, and what it means to be the Son, you're talking about related, similar, maybe image-type things, but not the same type of being. The Son is a creature, ultimately, the greatest creature. Uh, there was a mantra that the Arians used. There was a time when he, the Son, the Lagos, was not. There was a time when he didn't exist. He's not eternal. He didn't always exist. The God does. The Father does. But there was a time when he was not. 
There was a time when the father was without his son, according to Arianism. And because the son is not of the same substance, not of the same essence as the father, he can't fully know the father. He can't really know the father, because as I said before, only God can know God. Well, um, as I say, this battle, this controversy raged on for uh, several decades in the, the church. Uh, well-meaning Christians were in different areas and different debates, but as the conversation went on, some clarity came along. And uh, this guy called Athanasius was a leader in supporting the Nicene position. Right? Uh, he was a bishop of Alexandria, yeah, uh, northern Africa. And while he was present at the Council of Nicaea, he was a, a pretty junior level at that point. Uh, but afterwards, he became really uh, the, the leader in fighting the way the theologically against Arianism and in support of the Nicene position. And it raises a, a, an important question. Which passages interpret the others? I've been hinting at this along the way. How do we understand the passages that seem to suggest Jesus is somehow less than the Father? The Father is greater than I. And how do we interpret the passages where Jesus seems to be, and others seem to be stating equality, right? Uh, I and the Father are one. Which passages interpret the others becomes a key question. And that then takes us in the realm uh, of doing our Bible interpretation and also doing theology. And I would add quickly, you can never interpret your Bible without also doing theology. You're doing both at the same time, so let's do both well. Here's what Athanasius said of the Arian position, and it was pretty devastating. Arianism breaks the theologic of the faith. In other words, it makes Christianity internally inconsistent. It makes it nonsense. And he had two big arguments. The first is that only God can save. Now, this was a well-established principle. In fact, Arian and his supporters uh, agreed to this. Only God can save us. A creature cannot save another creature. Only God can break the power of sin and bring people to eternal life, and we need exactly that. But only our creator can deal with his creature's sin. But of course, from day one in Christianity, Jesus is the Savior. And Arius would say, absolutely, Jesus, the Logos, the super creature, he's our Savior. Athanasius excuse me, pointed out that this doesn't work because no creature can redeem another creature. And Arius would be like, yeah, that's right. Okay, God needs to save us. But according to Arius, Jesus is a creature. And Arius would be like, yeah, ultimately, the super creature, the first creature, the greatest creature, but still a creature. Therefore, according to Arius, Jesus Christ cannot redeem humanity. And Arius really is kind of stuck at this point. You can say Jesus is a good revealer of God. You could say Jesus is a good teacher of God. You could say Jesus uh, has the power of God in very unique ways. But you can't really say that Jesus is God. And if you can't really say Jesus is God, then you can't really say that he's our Savior. The second point he raised, and this one is powerful too, has to do with worshiping Jesus and idolatry. See, there's this very basic principle we believers have. Worship only God. If it's not God, don't worship it. 
right? I mean, this is the lesson the Israelites learned through their history. This is what sent them into exile out of their land, worshiping a multitude of gods, being uh, uh, religiously promiscuous, if you will, right? Um, Worship only God. If it's not God, don't worship it. Okay, yeah, that's right. But from the moment he was resurrected, continuously through today, Christians worship Jesus. We don't merely honor him. We don't merely venerate him or give him prestige. We worship him as God, as the Lord. If Arius is right, then we are worshiping a creature. If we're worshiping a creature, we're committing idolatry. If it's not God, don't worship it. So what that means is that in order for the Arian position to be consistent, we'd have to give up the practice of worshiping Jesus as divine. Arians didn't do this. They didn't want to. And the inconsistency of their position eventually had the the pro-Nicene position uh, prevailing. And for good reason, not simply for might or uh, political intrigue, but really theologically, without this, you lose a lot of the heart of Christianity. And I would add, by the way, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, those guys who come to your door, I love when they come to my door. Like, you don't want to talk to me. I'm like, oh, we want to talk to everyone. No, I'm really, man, you don't want to talk to me. <laughs> they come in pairs, one's a junior, one's a senior level. So you find which one is the guy in training and you focus it on him. Uh, that's a fun afternoon for me. Anyway, my point is, the Jehovah's Witnesses are modern-day Arians. They believe pretty much Arianism. They do not worship Jesus. They do not think he's the Savior, rather just a good prophet, uh, because they do not think he's God. They think that he's a creature. Arianism is alive and well today. But within what we call Christianity, what it was is rightly the historic Christian faith, uh, the Nicene creed, uh, the Nicene position prevailed, and, and as I say, rightly so, because without it, you have to give up things that are basically and truly Christian, not just an idea, but even basic Christian practices. In other words, hear me here, your theology is embedded in what you do as a Christian. Your theo- our theology is embedded in what we do as a church. We need to tease it out and think about it, but it's not ivory tower abstract thought. It actually really is who we are, how we live and move in the world. Um, In the text of the apostles, nope, in the the Nicene Creed, it was, oh, I've got that backwards. Okay. Yeah, no, that's that's total heresy. So pretend like yes is here and no is here. (laughs) Sorry, my apologies. Homo eusios. Eusios means nature or substance, and homo means the same. So the Arian position was Jesus, the son, right, was of a similar substance or of a like substance. That's what that letter I is. And homo usios, of the same substance, of the same nature to the father. And again, I apologize, I, I, I uh, got the, that backwards, but homo usios is what prevailed. There's only, that's what I, that's exactly it. Uh, between heresy and classic Christian thinking, there's only an iota of difference. One letter can sure make all the world of difference. Yeah. Yep, sorry about that. And again, uh, I'm sorry for the confusion. It, 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 it the word, homo simply means of the same, right, the same. E, 
this letter iota in Greek means uh, sort of similar, and then substance, usios, essence. So is the son homo eusios with the father of a similar substance, maybe a carbon copy, but still really a creature? Or is the son homo usios, that is, same substance, same essence, same being as the father? And again, uh, this slide is heretical. Please uh, switch it in your mind. I want us to read quickly here the Nicene Creed, because while it's not the Apostles' Creed, it is a historic creed of the Christian faith that all Christians adhere to. And it emerged out of this controversy. Whereas the Apostles' Creed can say, I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, there wasn't the controversy going on in the second and third century that there was in the fourth century, which then causes the church to articulate more clearly what is true of Christian belief and practice in the historic faith. So, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, sound familiar? And all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and let's be clear what we mean by this, the only begotten, that is the only one who is generated from the Father, begotten of the Father before all ages, that is eternally, remember we talked about this last week, that the Father fathers, begets, generates the Son always timelessly. There's never a beginning to that act. There's never uh, any time or temporality to that uh, giving the Son his existence. Light of light, just as light comes out of light and is the same thing, the Son comes out of the Father. Very God of very God, begotten, not made. We're going to be very clear for the Arians here. Of one essence, homoousios, with the Father, by whom all things were made, whom for us men and women and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Again, this is in many ways drawing from the Apostles' Creed and was made human, made man was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, was suffered and was buried. Third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And again, following the Trinitarian formula, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'll leave the rest of that there, but you can see quite clearly the Nicene theology that comes out of this. Now, how, uh, could someone tell me what time it is? 48? Okay, 12 minutes. Um, all right, that's okay, because this is important. Uh, let me clip along here, and, and uh, I, I won't be able quite to finish, but I think I can finish this section. Remember, so we're back to the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. This, this confession that Jesus is Lord is the earliest things Christians said and did when it came to Jesus. Like I said, they worshiped him and continue to worship him. Jesus is Lord uh, appears as an early Christian confession in scripture. Uh, there are several places where it shows up, but it seems to be something that the Christians were saying from the very, very get-go. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, uh, the Nicene Creed, other creeds are in some ways just working out this simple three-word sentence. Jesus is Lord. Well, if he's the Lord, then he has to be like the Father. If he's Lord, then he ought to be worshipped. This basic Christian confession is at the heart of the Apostles' Creed, and everything else radiates out 
from it. And as I said before, but I'll mention it here again, don't lose sight of the idea that this is also a political statement. But I'll come back to that in a minute. Because this idea, Jesus is Lord, is a commitment to a person, this center of our Christian faith, Jesus Christ. It's not a conceptual truth. It's not nirvana or enlightenment to be achieved, right? It's not um, some wisdom or way of life as Confucianism, for example, might have it. it. No, it's a person. And it's at the core of what it means to be a Christian. It's deeply personal. The Christian faith is highly personal, but it's never been private. The idea that you have a private faith that's cut off from the public world, that's cut off from uh, the rest of us, that's cut off from the public square, is very much an enlightenment idea out of the West. This sequestering of theological claims, the sequestering of Christian ideas and Christian truths to the upstairs where the kids play. So we do the real work down here of governing and talking about morals and ethics. You can believe whatever you want in your heart and in your mind, but just, you know, don't bring that here out to the rest of us. That's an enlightenment idea. And I want to suggest to you is a very unchristian idea because it's always been a personal but public faith that we have. The apostles proclaimed the Christian faith in public. The message of Jesus they passed on has all sorts of implications for public life, human thriving. What does it mean to be a good person? What does justice look like? Oh yeah, our faith has all sorts of things to say about that. In fact, this statement, Jesus is Lord, is a world-changing truth with all sorts of, again, political implications, we are, at the end of the day, monarchists as Christians. Now, we live in a world of liberal democracy, and we're called to be faithful within that framework, absolutely, sure. But Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king, but not like those kings that we saw earlier in history. And every inch of reality belongs to him, including our economics, including our justice system, including the way we relate to resources in the land, like this is really all-encompassing. So let me take an example here of what I mean, and I think this will be a good stopping point. The world of the ancient church was hierarchical, highly hierarchical. Men were above women, and no one really disputed it much. The rich were above the poor. Free people were above slaves. And all of society was structured along these hierarchies. But those divisions that put some human beings above others, the idea that some, is, some are by, by their social or gender or economic status or whatever are somehow better or more human, than none of that could withstand baptismal waters. It melts away. It melts away in the waters of baptism. In the Christian baptism... Everyone confesses the same Lord. Jesus is Lord. In the baptismal pool, there is no difference between men and women, rich and poor, slave and free. That hierarchy goes away. So Christian baptism, this declaration of our Lord, this, this confession, Jesus is Lord, is actually a radical statement about God 
about ourselves, about society, about justice. In the first generation of Christians in Scripture, we find the Apostle Paul urging this Christian named Philemon to regard his Christian slave as, quote, no longer a slave, but a beloved brother. The logic of slavery, be it ancient slavery or, you know, a modern chattel slavery that we know of the last 500 years, there are different types of slavery, but whatever the slavery is, the logic of it can't withstand the Christian faith. So by the 4th century, the theologian and church leader Gregory of Nyssa speaks a scathing denunciation of the institution of slavery that's based on the idea Jesus is Lord, so slavery should not be. Jesus calls us to freedom, not slavery. A revolution had begun, and by the medieval era, Europe had essentially gotten rid of slavery. You know that? Christian Europe essentially got rid of slavery only to reintroduce a very insidious version of it, race-based slavery, when it came to the greed and exploits of the age of discovery in the colonial era. The slavery you and I know of from American history books was invented to justify greed, exploitation. Slavery was eradicated in Europe on Christian principles for hundreds of years. Uh, that's going to, how much, what, what time are we at? I've got four minutes. That's going to be a good stopping point. I was hoping to get through more, but that's okay, because that was a lot. Someone asked me a question. Are the Jewish people more Are the Jewish people more Aryan or Nicene? Is that what you're... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Jewish faith, well, it depends, right? Um, Generally, the, the Jewish perspective would be, this is a silly conversation. What are you guys talking about? God is one. Uh, your Jesus is perhaps a prophet, but definitely not the firstborn of creation, definitely not the Logos. Um, but I should say quickly here, it, it, we would need to, to nuance it, because there are Messianic Jews, right? There are Christian Jewish people who you know, are ethnically and culturally Jewish, but are Christians in their belief and you know, spiritual practices and all that sort of thing. So I, I'm almost hesitate to speak monolithically of Judaism because it is multifaceted. But I think as a broad stroke, we might say they would view the fourth century debate as an intramural debate with those crazy Christians who've lost the plot. <laughs> Didn't the slaveholders in the South quote something that Jesus said about approving slavery that you were supposed to... Yeah, uh, didn't slaveholders in the South quote something Jesus said about proving slavery? Yeah, there was, uh, you know, if we, to get into the history of it here, uh, what we might call slaveholder theology, that using various verses and ignoring others, uh, <laughs> right? Um, the, the scriptures were used to justify the institution of chat, chattel slavery as uh, the North Atlantic, you know, the Atlantic uh, had it. Um, Many American denominations split along the lines of slavery, right? So we have Northern and Southern Baptists 
because of slavery. You have different types of Presbyterians. Some of that line is because of slavery. You have a lot of denominations that split along those lines. But I think one of the lessons we might be able to take away from the fourth century controversy about Arianism is that simply because you quote the Bible doesn't mean you're getting it right. Uh, I mean, we talked about this last week in the sermon. Satan quotes scripture. <laughs> Just because you quote it doesn't necessarily mean you've got it right. But you are right. Um, but, but even, this, and let me flesh this out because it's a great point. In the slave, the institution of slavery in America, at first it was, we can't have slaves becoming Christians because if they share in our baptism, then the logic of the institution we have is undercut. We have to consider them subhuman, and if they're subhuman, then the gospel's not theirs to hear. And that was the, the logic that worked with it. Uh, despite that, many black Christians who were enslaved, uh, well, many black folks who were enslaved became Christians and had secret religious services of their own. Uh, <laughs> you can't hold back the gospel. But later on it developed, well, actually we might be able to use our Christian faith and particularly the Christian scriptures as a tool of oppression. And so there's a, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but there's a, a slave Bible. Of course, the books of Exodus was cut out because all that talk of freedom and delivery from slave, we can't have them reading that. I mean, it's actually like a fraction of what the Bible actually is, just cutting out any verses that might give them ideas. That was there in our American history as well. Um, uh, but, you know, we can add to this story the story of abolitionists who were largely led and motivated by Christians uh, in the UK and also in the States, uh, black and brown Christians who fought for their own liberation and freedom on Christian principles and continue to do so in the oppression that continues in America through the 20th and even here in the 21st century. Uh, brings us back to a good stopping point. The claim Jesus is Lord is way more powerful than you think. It's way more demanding than you think, than you might think. It's way bigger than you might think. It speaks to every part of human existence, including economics, politics, things like slavery, and even things that we wrestle with today. Is Jesus' lordship capable of being hijacked by one particular party or ideology? Nope. <laughs> and if you do that, you're in some serious trouble. But does God, the Lordship of Jesus, call us to think and act Christianly in our political realities? Absolutely. So let's talk about what that looks like, because the answers aren't easy. But it's what we are called to do as those who profess Jesus is Lord. Thank you. Uh, we will pick back up next week, with, and I promise we'll go uh, at a we'll cover more ground, uh, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So same time, same place, nine tomorrow, nope, nine next Sunday, uh, we'll be here. And then the week after that, I'm away speaking at a conference, so our good friend Henry here will be leading the discussion in two weeks from today. And I'm very grateful and excited about that. So thank you for coming. Thank you for this. Look forward to seeing you next week. I'm going to run off and make a worship service happen. <laughs>